before we get into the word of God, I just want to share with you that God is just so faithful. Um, he has just been so constant in the midst of everything. And, you know, just as we were singing today, and I don't know about you, but when we sing words like, I'm running to your arms, um, I reflect on just the reality of the Word of God. And I don't know about you, but the name of the Lord is a strong tower for me, and the righteous do run into it and are safe. So Proverbs 18 just comes alive when we sing words like that. And I'm sharing that with you, hoping you're experiencing the same thing, that this God that we serve and we sing about is real, and the fact that we're singing these songs are hopefully a response to the grace that he's pouring out in our lives. So before we open up the Word of God today, I hope that we can all reflect together on what God is doing in our lives, whether it's this morning or throughout the week as we're surveying His faithfulness, our God is alive and active in us. So with that, let's stand together. We're going to read a couple of verses this morning, a couple of verses that have a whole lot in them. We're going to start mid-sentence at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. Verse 2 starts and says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for joy in your word, joy in Christ. We thank you, God, as we get to explore the words that you have given us to learn and understand more about Jesus, that this rich truth abides in us and is with us even now. I pray, God, that we we are drawn closer to you, God, in worship and devotion and fellowship, Lord. I pray, God, that you would illuminate this text to us, the things that we could not see with our own eyes and and understand with our own minds or even have an affection towards with our own hearts, that you would bless us to know and to see and to wonder at all that you are. Lord God, enrich us with your word. God, hide me behind the cross, Lord, that I may proclaim the truth and that Jesus is seen in a much clearer light he deserves all glory, honor, and praise forever. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we read this text, one thing comes to mind. One of the most scandalous truths of Christianity is that we center our entire belief system on a man who is God. Our entire frame of reference for what we would establish as the Christian religion is based on the fact that a man 
is God. This is not a man who is a God, but a man who is the true and living God, the true and living God. Now, many people can accept the Jesus Christ of human history. Many people can can be drawn to the, the idea that Jesus Christ was here and that he was among us and that he interacted with human beings. There's a certain endearing quality for many people who imagine this godlike person teaching profound lessons. It's the most caring individual to ever live, expresses this form of love that's revolutionary and often teaches us how to love or is the example for us how to love. So this endearing quality or this endearing idea or concept of Jesus often draws people closer, makes a certain attractiveness evident in Christianity or the expression of Christianity we often see. So much to the point that sometimes people become bold in their expression of what they think this Christ is. And, and there's creative ways that they may explore what they think about Jesus or what they can conclude about who Christ was. Some of those creative expressions come in the form of T-shirts and paraphernalia. I remember some years ago there was kind of like this movement or marketing, I don't know, campaign, this concept of uh, Jesus is my homeboy. And there were T-shirts and mugs and banner stands and bumper stickers and all this stuff. And, and it was kind of like, I guess, culture's idea of what it may, meant to accept Christ as a, a symbol of mainstream society. And it was really interesting how different people responded to that. So some people said, yeah, you know, I could see Jesus as a friend and Jesus is somebody who would stand next to me and and be cool with me and and actually interact with the things that I do on a day-to-day basis. And there were others who just completely rejected this idea. I was an other. (laughs) And during this time, I just had a really hard time interacting with friends um, who either express themselves to be nominal religious folks or just flat-out non-religious folks coming to me and saying, hey, Jesus is my homeboy, man. You know, we're the same, right? And I had to find ways to, to, to graciously have a more fully formed discussion about what I believe in light of who Jesus is. So no matter what this this endearing quality is about Christ, if you're drawn to him on the basis of superficial realities or even incomplete conclusions, at some point this picture of the perfect person begins to suffer inquisition. So whatever you think about Jesus, the more and more you explore what, what is actually believed and taught in churches about Jesus you start to kind of, if you're just a, a, a normal individual in society, you may start to back away from this idea that this Jesus was perfect. There are certain criticisms that start to arise, whether it's just random speculations about Jesus' marital status, 
or this idea of his affability or likability amongst sinners. Sometimes that causes some interesting discourse. Or it could just be his quote-unquote silence regarding certain moral and political issues. A lot of people have fun with the water-to-wine story. They come to their own conclusions about Jesus based on how they interpret his acceptance and embracing of that party scene. Or people just may just be stuck on, fixated, and struggling with the reality of the resurrection. Where many often land is to acknowledge that Jesus was a good person and a profound teacher, but that Jesus was not deity, that Jesus was not perfect, that Jesus was not God. Last week we took a look at the ways that God has spoken and through whom he has spoken. We saw that the first two verses point to Jesus as the fulfillment of every word from the prophets throughout history. We visited with the Apostle John's words, confirming that Jesus is the actual word of God that has always been from the beginning and is ever present with us now. Jesus confirms this himself in many ways in the Gospel of John. We explored last week where John records these words from Jesus, that the Scriptures testify of me. Ultimately, in John chapter 6, Peter confirms Jesus as the owner of revelation and life, and saying to Jesus, where am I going to go? You own the words of eternal life. Now, just a brief segue. Remember, as I was when I was younger, um, a young, zealous Christian, attending my my dad's church. Many of you guys met my dad. My dad would preach week after week, week after week, and I had the privilege of working in the sound booth. So I'm listening with the headphones, and I'm hearing every word my dad says. Now, some Sundays, he would uh, misquote Scripture, or sometimes he would say the wrong prophet when it should have been a patriarch or it should have been something. And I'm listening in my headphones, and I'm hearing everything he says, or maybe he stumbled over a word. So in my zeal, you know, I decided to bless my dad after service and say, hey, dad, I heard you uh, say that Samuel said something when, in fact, that was Ezra. Just thought you should know. (laughs) So I say that to him, of course, with the intention of blessing the rest of his day as he leaves church, I guess, wondering what people got out of his sermon. And and what's interesting about that is I had the luxury of, of, of critiquing every aspect of what he was preaching in that moment and saying those things. And I have to admit to you that last week I was guilty of that. <laughs> so in talking about what John chapter 6 is expounding of Jesus being the owner of the revelation of life, or the, of revelation and life, 
I said that Jesus says that the scripture testi- scriptures testify of me. That's found in John 6, when in fact it's actually found in John 5. So when you see my dad, just tell him that God got me. John chapter 5 leads into this entire picture of the revelation of Jesus, the owner of the word of God, the owner of the words that carry eternal life. John 5.39 is the actual passage that says where Jesus is saying, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures testify of me is just a different translation. The King James Version says the same thing in saying that the scriptures testify about Christ. What's interesting about revisiting this and going back and finding that that text is found in John 5.39. We see that John 5 is actually a more appropriate context for what we need to explore today. Because Jesus' audience in John chapter 5 was very offended at the notion that he could proclaim to be deity. The audience in John chapter 5 is very similar to the audience the writer of Hebrews is writing to, and that they were inclined to rely upon the teachings of the Mosaic law. They were inclined to rely upon the teachings from the prophets as if they were to be measured against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Jews had, it's, it's pretty much an understatement to say that the Jews had a hard time with Jesus' words back when Jesus was on earth. And they began to detect this not-so-subtle claim from Jesus where he's essentially telling them about his own godhood. They began to read in between these lines and not even have to read in between the lines at certain parts where Jesus was openly declaring himself to be God. As we looked at John 5.39 to hear what Jesus says, we only have to go a few verses earlier to John 5.18 where the apostle records this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath and healing the man that he did, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 1 in these verses that we read, what is this text saying to us? One thing this text is giving us is the picture of the Trinity. The Trinitarian perspective is, is pretty clearly in view here. One God, three persons. And if we read these verses... We cannot properly understand them without appropriately applying the doctrine of the Trinity. 
I'm going to read the text again. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you read carefully, you see God spoke by his son, whom he appointed an heir, through whom he created the world, the exact imprint of his nature, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These are explicit references to God the Father, who's present in intention. It is the will of the Father that anything ever happens to the glory of God. The Father's glory, the Father's nature, the Father's majesty are all present in this text. Even as we just read in John 5, 18, there's this kind of subtle indication that whether or not maybe the Jews understood it fully or even could acknowledge it vocally, maybe they understood something about the Trinity. In the fact that Christ, they were offended that Christ was calling God his own Father, And that takes them to make the assumption that Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. Jesus does make constant reference to the Father. He makes a constant reference to doing the will of the one who sent him. And we see that the Son accomplishes the purposes of the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says explicitly, I and the Father are one. So this person of the Father is in view. It's this particular passage in Scripture, Jesus confirms this consistently throughout the Gospels. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work is implicit in the content of this text as it is the work of the Spirit to reveal Christ. So you read these words, you don't get to to look at this and say, well, the Spirit's not mentioned here, therefore the Spirit's not present. The implicit work of the Spirit is to explicitly reveal Jesus. So the Spirit is present in this text in that there is a, a very specific purposeful revelation of who Jesus is in the words that we read. Going back to the Apostle John in chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, Jesus says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. 
Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We know that as we read Scripture, we should know that as we read Scripture, that it it was holy men who were carried along by the Spirit to write the things that we now read, declare these truths that we now trust in. The design of these words in the explicit revelation of Christ as God points towards the work of the Holy Spirit. The prophetic words, the revelation of the Son, both point to the work of the Spirit. The Spirit's mission is subject to the Father's will. It's accomplished through the Son. Now, the beauty of the Trinity is that there's this perfect submission here this perfect harmony that's on display. There's, there's not this holy competition, you know, where somebody's trying to get more acknowledgement. There's this perfect submission where this, the harmony is displayed in a way where we can see all of these things working together perfectly to reveal who God is to us. You must understand that you don't bring glory to Jesus without glorifying the Father, nor without the work of the Spirit. You don't praise the Father without exalting Jesus, whom the Spirit was sent to reveal. You don't respond to the Spirit in any other way than to bow before God the Father, God the Son. It's always working together. There's no disunity here. So when you're acknowledging the persons in their intention and their function, You're acknowledging the triune nature of God. Always. So who's in view here? This this text is obviously giving us reason to explore the Trinity. But in view here is the Son. The Son is properly centerpieced. It's the following descriptors the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by his power, making purification for sins, at the right hand of the majesty on high, superior to angels. The Son of God is the church's greatest need. As these, this audience of Jewish Christians may subtly begin to, 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 to refer back to their earlier understanding of God, there is an emphasis here. You must understand that the Son of God is your greatest need. The supremacy of Christ we observe simultaneously. The closest that humanity can be with God, and also the furthest we can be from God. The closest we can be, he becomes human. He dwells among us, but also the furthest in that he is perfect and that he is presented as a sacrifice that no other person could be. So we're close, and yet his glory remains. Colossians 5, excuse me, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, 
provides very similar wording to these first few verses in Hebrews. Establishes the preeminence of Christ, where in all things he has the first place. In all things he is high and lifted up. So as we look through these attributes that are listed in Hebrews chapter 1, 2 through 4, there are parallels that we can observe. First, he, Jesus is appointed heir. You want to list these things and, and go through some of the, the, the aspects of the attributes that are being explored here. First, he is appointed heir. He is heir to all things, as creator of all things, and as redeemer in making all things new. In that he is creator of all things. The created things are made through him for him. They're made through him for him. We also understand that in making new creations, we have to understand that as, as Christians, we aren't just the old things. We aren't just the things that stand, stand in place. But he has made new creations out of dead carcasses who had no hope. We are formed as new creations and he inherits the saints as his own. He has saved us and we are his people. We are his inheritance. That which is past, that which is now, that which is to come are all discovered in Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Son. If we understand the title of the heir as the Son, he is the righteous heir. Next, he is the creator. The entire universe of space and time are of his design. Did not intend for that to rhyme, but for God's glory to shine. <laughs> It's not in my notes, you know. <laughs> just happened. Uh, <laughs> he's the creator. I love the creator aspect here. Now, what's, what's interesting about the creator, this, this is often debated in our society. You know, it's, it's <sighs> the creator is one of the most glorious attributes that we can spend time observing in Worshiping because of what God is telling us here. These scientific debates are almost a guilty pleasure of mine in that the arguments that are present against a creator of the world, for me, are even more evidence for a creator. The human intellect by itself is, is brilliant evidence for a creator. You've got the intellect on display. You've, you've got measurable variables. You've, you've got discoverable data. The math itself is evidence for a creator that you can even come to a conclusion based on e, an equation. That's not random. That is design. And that you can lean in and understand something about our world because of an equation that's discoverable. Stephen Hawking says this, 
Stephen Hawking, pull me to the side and let me talk to you about Stephen Hawking for an hour. But he says this. We, know, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes, each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. Now, out of his own mouth, Stephen Hawking says, we now know. So that means you didn't know at some point. And you now know this. And you just spout this out as if this is just something that we shouldn't marvel at. And not only do we just now know this, but you're you're saying that it's only one of some hundred thousand million. That that makes me feel very small. In, in, In the things that we're observing that much larger and grander. And then he just casually says, using modern telescopes. So we just, just created something that could just now look at this and see some of it. Modern telescopes. What does that say about human history? What does that say about people who have existed throughout time? We just now could discover this using modern telescopes. It it, it crushes the fact that you think that you could own and or come up with any of this, and it makes it even more insane to believe that this is a random occurrence. The correct conclusion that doesn't take any work is to bow down before Jesus Acknowledge that Christ created all of it. Every dust particle, every atom, electron, star, planet, galaxy points us to a discoverable outcome that we can study. And we will never stop discovering. Even though we will never stop discovering, we understand that everything created has a limit And so we can't discover this even though it has a limit, and yet Christ is eternal. Only someone eternal could step into time, define time, give us the cognition to understand something of this creation, and then point us back to himself. He is the creator. He is the creator. The radiance of the Father. He is the radiance of the Father. The brightness of his glory, as another translation says. Christ is not a reflection of God's glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. The Mount of Transfiguration shows this, where at that moment... Jesus is transfigured before them. It says that his clothes were whiter than anything could ever be. It was whiter than any bleached substance. It was a brightness that shone forth. Paul on the Damascus Road saw this. This light that shines and knocks Paul off of his horse. Revelation 1.16 specifically says that his face is shining as if it's the full strength of the sun. 
And the one commentary says this, so some render it the ray of his glory, the radiance of the Father as the ray of his glory, and may lead us to observe that the Father and the Son are of the same nature as the Son and the ray, and that one is not one, not before the other, yet distinct from each other and cannot be divided or separated from one another. Now, I know how much we all love our Trinity analogies. And we may get hung up on some of these analogies. But for every failed attempt to describe what the Trinity truly is, the person of Jesus, the person of the Father, the person of the Spirit, for every failed attempt we understand that there is more reason for us to lean into the mystery that is in view here. Further we lean into it, further we understand that this is something beyond what man can comprehend and even illustrate, more reason we have to acknowledge that this is God. Which leads us to our next attribute. He's the exact imprint of God. John chapter 14 gives us this scenario where Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. As this is being explored and, 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 and displayed and, and articulated to these Jewish Christians, you can imagine it must be fighting at every inclination that they would have to accept this. That Jesus is both distinctly God and unified with the Father. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Colossians 1.19 says that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Next, the, the Word says that He upholds the universe by his power. Not only is he creator, but he is the sustainer of all things. And all things are held together or they fall apart at the power of Christ. And here's the encouragement for the Christian. That he is faithful. That he is mighty. That he is constant. I like how... Pastor and theologian Kent Hughes says of this particular part of Scripture, he can sustain the universe and he can sustain the struggling, harried church. Looking at all these things, it's like, okay, well, I walk away with the information about Jesus and, 
and I'm, and I'm glad to know this information about Jesus, but sometimes there's a struggle with the practical theology of, of what do we do with this? Okay, he creates the world, he sustains the world. That's a great and honorable truth. I worship you, God. Thank you. But then in a week or in a couple of days, you become worried about a very small circumstance. There's not something else that you need to go to or another place in Scripture that you need encouragement from. This is still the place to stick with. In that he is the sustainer of all things, he will sustain you through whatever trial and circumstance that you are enduring. He will sustain this body in the, in the face of all the things that we are enduring. He will sustain you personally if you feel like there is an outcome that you can't deal with. He is faithful, constant, powerful, mighty. He is God. You must see that at all all cases that you have to doubt, and all circumstances where you feel like there's not enough God for me right now, he is always putting these things together and holding them in place. Jesus says it so well. He just casually says, consider the lilies of the field and how beautiful they are. Consider the birds in the air. Things in nature that maybe we just don't pay attention to all the time. He says, I, they're always taken care of. I love you. Will I not that much more take care of you and establish you and make sure that you are taken care of? We serve a God who has an infinite attention span. He doesn't get distracted He's always caring for us. Next attribute, he makes purification for sin. We'll explore this more as we proceed through Hebrews. This is communicating his high priestly sacrifice as the perfect sacrifice. Colossians 1.20 says that he reconciles all things, making peace by blood on a cross. This is the type of purification that we need. A perfect atonement via a perfect sacrifice. He makes purification for sin. He makes us pure in this perfect sacrifice. Next attribute says that he sat down on the right hand the majesty on high. I'm going to go back to what Kent Hughes says here. I love what he says. He says that the significance here is that priests never sat down. Levitical priests were always standing because no sacrifice was complete. So what does Jesus sitting down represent? That it is finished. He sits down, high priestly office, sits down and is able to establish before heaven and earth. No more sacrifices need to be made. I have accomplished all things. It is over. It is done. You can rest in me. Now, we will observe Christ's superior to angels next week. Don't think we have time for that today. 
What's the point of laboring through these words, these verses, these descriptions? It's to point back to the reality and to establish the truth that Jesus is God. We make no apologies for giving him such glory. All of the glory of God has always been represented in Jesus Christ. Although it was veiled certain times, you can see now clearly that his glory has always been. He's the God-man. He is the true and living God. He is the eternal, everlasting king. He is not to be bypassed or diluted. We view this. Let it grip us. We see the gravity of this. We understand that this is not something that we can put together or conceive or design of our own imaginations. This is the work of God. I'm going to leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's a pretty commonly used quote. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent someone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He is not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think that this text gives us a perfect illustration of that. You can't leave from this text thinking anything else of Jesus but that he is Lord and King. I pray that as we continue through this book that the tone is set. Everything that we're talking through and what we're studying through and what we're meditating on leads us back to this reality that God's Son has ultimate supremacy. We can hope in Christ. And we don't just dangle a trinket of religious perspective alongside of what we cling to. That He is all in all. That He is revealed. He is to be worshiped and to be proclaimed as such. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you humbled at your majesty. Father, we thank you that you sent your son not just to abide in human history as as someone to be debated or just to be a controversial figure that no one can come to a conclusion about. 
We thank you, God, for your word that helps us understand that Jesus is Lord and King. We thank you that we can behold him in the creation of this world, in the reality of our relationship with God. Our worship, our fellowship together reveals his true and everlasting Lord and Savior. We pray, God, that you continue to remind us that we can trust in your word, that we can always look back to these attributes and find refuge and hope. That you be merciful to us as we wrestle with our depravity and our unbelief, our doubt. That we be firmly established when Christ is the cornerstone. Pray, God, that your spirit would do such a work in us that we be awakened to this reality every day. We thank you for your word. We trust you. Holy Spirit, continue to do the work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.